listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So I'm very well aware that when a portion of one of the New Testament epistles is read aloud in church, it can often be kind of hard to track, maybe especially on a hot summer night. A story or a parable is so different because it has this narrative flow from A to B to C. The disciples are tired, so Jesus says, come away. Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. They get in the boat, they go to a quiet place, but still the crowd follows. Jesus has compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he begins to speak with them. Soon people are bringing their sick and suffering friends and relatives to him for healing. Tick, tick, tick. It all flows along. The listener can kind of picture it all in your mind's eye. It's got that that narrative flow. But an epistle reading such as the one we had today from Ephesians, can be so very different. Because while a perspective is being unfolded step by step, it is by no means story-shaped. Maybe a word catches your attention and your mind pauses for a minute. Or you miss a phrase and you lose track of what it is Paul is getting at. Or maybe you just get distracted and you daydream through the whole thing. The word of the Lord, the reader says. Thanks be to God, we all reply. But just how much of it was actually heard and savored and digested? No, most of us really prefer to hear stories read out loud, me included. So just imagine the earliest audience of this letter. Those Christians in house churches in and around Ephesus. Now, we had just 11 verses of the sixth chapter epistle read to us. That's 263 words of the epistle's total 2,422. They would have packed themselves into the largest house and sat and listened while the, the letter was read from the beginning straight through to the end. They were together to do this, partly because the majority of them would not have been able to read. So the only way to receive it is to have it read to you. And partly because these letters were written not to individuals, but always to communities. They were meant to be heard and reflected on and thought through together. All in one sitting, 2,422 words. In our world, where multitasking, sound bites, tweets, and tightly compacted news stories are the norm, we wonder how much they could possibly absorb of the full letter in one sitting. But in their cultural world, It was simply the way. Capacity would have been built for that kind of careful listening and learning. Theirs was a world quite different from ours 
or maybe better, ours is a world quite different from any that has preceded it. Think about this for a minute. In the 17th century, John Donne, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, preached in that great, great, grand, echoey, open cathedral with no sound equipment, in a vast space with all of that echo, he preached routinely more than an hour on a Sunday morning, and he packed the place. They had a different capacity to listen than we do in our world. If you were sitting in that house in Ephesus listening, as this newly arrived letter was read for the very first time, certain words and phrases would certainly have begun to pop. By the time you arrived at the section we read tonight, one of those words that would be popping is the word peace. Not only does the epistle open with a greeting of peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but here in tonight's 11 verses, that word is used four times. For he, Christ, for he is our peace. He made in himself one new humanity in place of two, thus making peace. He came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Peace. That's a good thing, right? You want to hear, hear good messages about peace. Who could possibly object to that? Well, perhaps actually the empire. The Roman Empire held to what amounted to a monopoly when it came to peace. Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was, of course, an enforced peace, imposed by the sword, often reinforced by the terror of crucifixion. Around the Mediterranean basin, North as far as Great Britain, across all of North Africa, there is this one empire. One empire held in an uneasy unity by force, which they called peace. The emperor, the emperor held as one of his many titles, peace bringer, but he's order bringer. And so Sally Brown comments, he, Christ, is our peace, would be a pronouncement bordering on treason. What is being claimed, after all, is that despite all of the swaggering claims of Rome's emperors, true peace has been inaugurated by a man the empire crucified. The dissonance between the chilling rhetoric of the state and the thrilling rhetoric of the gospel would set any listener's blood racing. Would have set their blood racing. But at the same time, it probably would have evoked very worried looks around the room. Fasten the door. Lock it. Is anyone listening from outside the window as we read this letter all about peace? Can we trust everyone? Is there a Roman sympathizer in our midst? He is our peace. He is Lord. It's dangerous stuff to say such things in a world that said the emperor is Lord. The emperor is the peace bringer, not some Galilean peasant crucified in Jerusalem. 
Ephesians is a letter written primarily to Gentile believers. They would have had little or no sense of that great Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom runs through the Hebrew Scriptures. They wouldn't have known much about that. Peace to Gentiles would have been most definitely colored by the empire's version of things. But now they're hearing these words that say a deeper peace is already at work in their midst. He is our peace. And that the first sign of that has to be the dropping of those age-old divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember that deep division of those who saw themselves as the consummate chosen people and insiders, and all of you who had nothing of that. But now, know this new reality. He is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Strangers and aliens no more, people of Ephesus, strangers and aliens no more, but instead citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The way to embrace and to enact the peace of Christ is to accept that truth and then live into it and live into it deeply and vibrantly and vividly. Because, quote, In Christ, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into the dwelling place of God, Jew and Gentile, and then echoing other places in Paul's writing, slave and free, male and female, joined together as one structure to grow into the holy temple of God, the people as the temple of God. As with the word peace, who could possibly be troubled by that? Everybody comes together, and in the everybody, in the gathered community, here is God present as in a holy temple. Why would you possibly object? Who could? Well, how about the Jewish people who had not accepted Paul's teaching that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the completion, the culmination of God's long story with Israel? For them, this stuff is deeply problematic. The temple, the proper temple, is the symbol of God's dwelling place. It's the point where the heavenly and the earthly are are met to meet. That's what a temple is. And with the temple stands the Torah, the holy writings that show Israel how to be Israel. And now these Gentile Ephesians are being instructed that they are not bound by the Torah, and that they are meant to be one with the Jews, and that the dwelling place of God is now in this mixed group, this disreputably mixed group of people following Jesus of Nazareth. You call that a temple? (sighs) 
So it's actually a bit of dynamite that's being placed in the hands of those Ephesian Christians, setting them at risk in the empire and at odds with the more conventional face of Judaism, or more accurately, with the Jewish people who were opposed to the Jesus movement because, of course, there were many, many, many Jews who did embrace Christ and life in this new and growing church. There were dynamite in their hands, yes, but not the sort of dynamite that that they were supposed to use to explode someone else, right? It's rather a sort of dynamite, a dynamite sort of movement they were to live in setting aside old dividing lines and prejudices, choosing that deeper peace and reconciliation over ethnic and national or tribal loyalties, and being the face of peaceableness in the world in which they lived. That's dynamite, but it's dynamite living at the risk of dying. It wasn't anything like a call to be nice, to just get along, hold hands, sing campfire songs, and trust that everything would be just peachy. They lived in a violent world, and they knew it. And that violent world went through waves of deeply opposing and persecuting them. They were already feeling those waves in motion. They could not begin to be naive about that world and their place in it, but they could begin to live in the present what they believed had been promised for them in the ultimate future. As N.T. Wright puts it, this is, quote, the bracing ethic, the bracing ethic consistent across all of Paul's writings of living now in the light of the day that has already dawned and will one day be completed. Living now in the light that has dawned, but will one day be completed. Which is, of course, the claim still placed on us. Whether we find ourselves troubled by the oftentimes precarious international politics of our day, or maybe by the kinds of conflicts that come a whole lot closer to home, in families, between roommates, between friends, in churches, with neighbors on the street who never managed to get that lawn cut before the dandelions spread their seeds, in workplaces, wherever. We still live in places where there's all kinds of tension and conflict from the very little and trivial, the dandelions, to the world stage, which can kind of set your heart at dis-ease. In all of those places, Paul's bracing ethic still holds. Christ is our peace. A new day has indeed dawned. So we, in our own ways, in our own lives, and in our own community, need to get on with the business of living it now in hope of that deeper promise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.